Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com What's up, everyone? It is 2 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, which means you're tuning in to Cannabis Legalization News. Today, we're speaking with Tom Gliszewski from the Chicago Cannabis Company to discuss their uh, co-op out in Chicago. But first, uh, actually, Tom and Mickey, have you guys ever uh, participated in a co-op? No. Or a collective or anything of that sort? Well, technically, I, uh, yeah, I did. I did a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Uh, that was the year that I got more kale and roots than I could eat. Oh, dope. Well, yeah, yeah we're going to talk about his co-op in a few minutes. But for news, what's going on this week? Oh, it was a big week. Yeah. Let's start with the Florida Supreme Court. Florida Supreme Court heard oral arguments via um, Zoom, uh, essentially regarding whether or not they're going to lift the cap in Florida and try to decentralize the industry. It was okay, but it was pretty interesting watching the judges and the lawyers uh, on a Zoom conference where their background is a lot like what Miggy has, except instead of weed, it was like a courtroom. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, did you see also the the usual Supreme Court hearings were resumed? That was neat to listen to. Uh, oh, right, the Supreme Court, Supreme Court, the one that's you know the, is sitting in Washington D.C. instead of Tallahassee. That's the one that I was looking at for the Florida case, and we really yeah. hope that the Florida case breaks the state wide open so that a lot more players can get in. Because we're going to talk later with our guest about um, co-ops and the point of co-ops and all a lot of these other regulations to try to bring down the barrier of entry. You know, and uh, with Florida, you have to have a vertical integrated license. So they're talking $50 million range. Wow. But I think it's I great know. that they're using technology to kind of fork around our present situation. Yeah. Well, we're going to kind of need to. And I think that's just really going to change the way our service industry really works. Now, this is the, the way that we do business. And I don't think even when we're allowed to move around um, in a few more weeks, I, I don't know how many people next round are going to want to like literally physically sit down with me before they sign up so that we can do their cannabis application. It might be a lot more because I've been doing these video conferences and, you know, I met my clients all over the state. And did I ever meet meet them? No. Uh, and I think that's more just, it's even more accepted now, but yeah, back to the cannabis news. Did you see that there's a, what is it? Grow and, and give, is that what they call the main legalization and also the DC legalization where it's legal to have oh, it's yeah. legal to sell, uh, grow and gift. I think it's grow and gift. Uh, and so grow and gift might be changing in Maine. No, that wasn't what came out of Maine. Was it the, um, no more yet to be a state resident in Maine. 
The residents, like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, to be an owner, you you're, they just open the floodgates for. Uh, now, do you does that include out of country money? Sure. Sometimes out of country money can come in and might impact your um, ability to be able to get a legitimate visa here. However, that, that you say so you have to watch out for that. And then also you have to watch out for your percentages. So the percentages in certain states, for example, I was just reviewing Minnesota's law. And if you're here from Minnesota, please smash us a like and don't forget to uh, click subscribe because we're going to be doing a whole mess of Minnesota uh, legislation updates uh, as they roll out. But um uh, they also require that you're from Minnesota. The New Zealand law required that you were from New Zealand. But I want to say the Minnesota one was like 75%. And so there's always these percentages. And so like yeah. with Illinois, it doesn't officially say that you have to be from Illinois, but 30% of the points are going to go to people who are from Illinois. And because of that, it kind of makes it impossible to win a license unless you have the Illinois resident, you know? Isn't it crazy, though, you can accept out-of-state money but yet you can't transport your product to out of state. Well, money spends a lot easier in cannabis moves. You know, that's the nice thing about money. But um, well, then also we have the uh, what the, the the banking access in the house. Oh, that's the other big news. I just hopped online yesterday and did that after I did the uh, I did a fairly long video about how to review uh, your cannabis application for scoring. And so that's a, a new piece of um a consulting product that the company's now offering in the sense that, uh, you know, one of the things that we did before we submitted some people's apps, so we review them and then give our critique about their application. And now we're going to be reviewing a lot more apps, which we didn't get a chance to review uh, for how well they've positioned themselves to be able to appeal the decision if and when they lose. Uh, so uh, that that was pretty good. Check that out. But then I also had to do a quick uh, vid about the CARES 2.0 that the uh, House Democrats are doing, and that is a big, th like three trillion, eighteen hundred page, three hundred. No, I'm sorry, three trillion dollars and eighteen hundred pages of the law. Uh, page ten sixty six is the Safe Banking Act. The, so they oh. slipped the Safe Banking Act into the next Corona Relief Package. However, now the the Senate is going to be like, we don't need any more Corona Relief. Now, is this to exclude the the Carpro fucking uh, stipulation? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, so like you see, it died legislatively. It, it just went in there uh, by itself, the Safe Banking Act, which passed yeah. overwhelmingly uh, in last September. It passed overwhelmingly like 300 to 100 and some change uh, on the over and under for uh, for and against. But then when it got to the Senate, it went to that uh, judiciary or banking committee where uh, Crapo, who is a piece of crap, Crapo, uh, cut the legs out from under it and said, no, only 2% THC amongst many other regulations. And so it just never moved forward to a vote uh, in the Senate. And uh, the Senate may not even pass it if it did move forward to a vote. So it's just going to die right there. And so this happens very often. This is actually how the hemp bill became law because, you know, they might not have passed it individually. It gets stuck into the budget and then suddenly, but a bum. We have legal hemp, and maybe that's exactly what's going to happen with the Safe Banking Act, especially if Corona starts rebounding and the economy really starts to hurt.
Well, if they fucking just pass the Safe Banking Act, then that, that would help like with Massachusetts and the delivery situation, you know, and all delivery situations. All right? delivery situations. Yeah, that was the other big news from Massachusetts. So it was a big week in cannabis legalization news popping off all over the place. And so, yeah, Massachusetts is going to have a round for social equity delivery uh, starting May 28th. So we've done some uh, we've done a page on the cannabis industry dot com. Uh, I'll do a video on that uh, reviewing the application on here once we actually have the application in hand stay tuned for that may 28th and then you guys got some big news locally too right we got bupkis locally man uh, i mean i mean your mayor though what do you mean the didn't your mayor uh wants to have a city-owned co-op the city-owned co-ops that the mayor are talking about, uh, that was older. That's an older story from a while oh. back. And so we'll talk about how these city-owned co-ops may evolve and where they do create um, some value to them. But, uh, you know, it's it was an old story. Like, and uh, was the method that she wanted to get to to take some monies for um, the people that are actually in the city. But we'll see. I just love the fact that your mayor is willing to talk about it openly and, and think of it as an asset, a social justice, a whole uh, give your your constituents a chance to to because that's what I always felt about this whole industry is the fact that it should be a seed that gives everybody a chance to become whatever they want to be. You know, yeah, it's fucking hard. Growing is hard. I'm just uh, I did the uh, the wet trim versus dry trim challenge. Let me tell you. Dry trim smells so much better, like the terpene. Like, so like I have this wet trim stuff, and then right now it's in the cure process, and so we'll see how it ends in another couple more weeks. But uh, the first 48 hours or whatever, so like after I wet trimmed it and then I you know bagged it after it was dry, it smells like just cut grass. And then the uh, the one that I dry trimmed, it actually smells like terpenes. the plant did, it's like terpenes and stuff. Yeah, it's great. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. It's kind of like checking on your babies, huh? You're just every day kind of peeking. You don't want to open it up too much and whatnot. Yeah, not really. I mean, because then you get into the burping. And so, like, you're supposed to leave it off for for a half hour a day and then kind of shake it and make sure that it's at the right, you know, temp. But the, the nice thing about the labeling that you have, and so, like, this is a good regulation. You can see when it was harvested, when it was packaged. And so you can see if it was harvested and packaged, like, in a week. Or a lot of the cannabis that you read in Illinois, it's about three to four weeks that they will from the time that it's clipped to the time that it's packaged. You got both dates then on there. Yep. We have the harvest wow. date and we have the package date. Yeah, Washington, it was only the harvest date. And even then, it wasn't a requirement. It's just something they kind of flipped and flopped on as far as, hmm. you know, are we going to throw it on there or not? And, you know, and and sometimes, you know, you can smoke cannabis after a year. You know, there's curing. As long as it wasn't properly stored. As long as it's properly stored, right. The humidity is maintained. There's no bugs or, or molds or anything that could grow and go wrong in there. It's, it's just like cigars. Cigars can sit around for years, too, you know? Yeah, no, that's for sure. Yeah, but, you know, the, the co-op aspect of it, how are they going to lower the barriers to entry to this? I mean, we talked about Florida at the beginning and then how the, the Supreme Court just heard arguments last week. Uh, and if that goes and if they rule and they break it open so that there's an unlimited number of licenses and they don't need to be vertically integrated, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for people to get in in Florida. Because, as it said, there it is, you know, in Florida, you have to have how do you come to the 50 million in Denver House of Dankness was built and set up on 10 million. OK. So this is the 50 million number uh, more or less has to do with uh, the market prices that I've seen 
uh, from other uh, people that are in Florida and how much capital they've raised. And then, you know, you do have to have the land to grow. And I think there's also a fairly onerous residency uh, requirement in Florida as well. But uh, it's just that when you have a completely vertically integrated operation, um, it can get expensive. And so if you, like House of Dankness has, I thought they just had one retail outlet. With your license in Florida, if you want to have retail outlets, you can. And if you want to have more than one, you can. So what if, that, what if you have like 10 retail outlets, a huge farm, uh, great extraction, um, and then branding and all that other stuff and, and uh, middle management and um, a board and all that, it, it, it can get expensive. Is there a legal definition between the difference between co-op and collective? I have no idea. Uh, there's, there is something that they have that are like uh, LLLCs. And so it's, uh, it's more of a charitable LLC. And then it's yeah. something I could be able to Google while we bring our guest on and start talking about co-ops. Yeah. Hey, Tom. Oh. Hey, Tom. Hey. Tom, can you hear us? Hey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for the intro. Um, hey, all. This is Tom Glishevsky from Chicago Cannabis Company. Um, thanks, Tom and Miggy, for having me on and, and Lauren for the invites. Um, yeah, so Chicago Cannabis Company was founded uh, in 2018, uh, just just by myself, actually. Um, then we decided to transition into a worker-owned company or uh, or a cooperative, um, a worker cooperative in 2019, last year. Um, and we've been operating since a worker co-op since then. Um, so we're look right now we're licensed hemp, we're a licensed hemp business. You could check us out. If you Google Chicago Cannabis Company or go to chicanico.com. Um, but we're looking to get into the recreational cannabis industry in the next uh, couple of years. So, um, yeah, today I'm here to talk about co-ops, answer some questions uh, from the audience or from, or from you guys about what, you know, what is a co-op, um, what are some of the advantages of a co-op, etc. I think you helped me uh, differentiate what a co-op and a collective is because you said you're worker owned. Uh, is that what it defines a co-op as far as co-op workers own? Cause I know a collective is people who belong to the group, but yet other people grow for them. Yeah. Good question. So really a cannabis co-op is a, is a cooperative within the cannabis industry. So you can actually look at the different types of co-ops. For example, there's a worker owned co-op, a consumer owned co-op, a producer-owned co-op, um, and like a multi-stakeholder co-op. Um, so the purpose of these co-ops is vastly different. Um, they address different issues or can address different issues. Um, and some of these co-ops are a little bit more popular than others and have their own nuances, so to speak. Um, so where should we start? <laughs> well, I guess it would be the Illinois Benefit Corporation Act. Uh, and so in 2013, Illinois joined a lot of these other states. And I was under the auspices that there's also an LLLC, like three L's. And that is one of these benefit type corporations where you can set up uh, a business, but that business doesn't necessarily have to be run for what the traditional aspect of businesses is uh, to maximize profit to the shareholders. 
And because of that, you can have these benefit corporations that may still have the ability to have limited liability, but not necessarily have to make a profit. And um, I'm not sure if now is the Chicago Cannabis Company, have you set that up as a benefit company or is it just an LLC or do you not have any corporate structure? Yeah, good question. Um, well, it is a for-profit company and it is an LLC. Um, so uh, Illinois actually passed a, uh, a law last year at the end of last year. Um, should go into, we should be seeing some sort of, um, you know, follow up from this at some point. But essentially, this law creates a legal entity for worker owned cooperatives. So before it was pretty easy to set up like a producer or a farm cooperative, um, or even like a consumer cooperative. However, worker co-ops um, were always sort of in this gray area. So now there's an actual you know, entity that the state will say, okay, well, you're a worker-owned company and we have a structure for you. Here's how you would set up your, your company, submit your bylaws to the state, et cetera. Yeah. So that, exists, that exists now. It does. And it became effective January 1st. And that's something that's a limited worker cooperation or cooperative association act. And it became effective in January of this year. And that might be the, the, cause in the section 805, you're, well, I'm not going to sit here and talk about the, uh, the statutory naming conventions for Illinois, but it's nice to see that they actually have that. And it's not just for agricultural and may, maybe it's also for other goods and services. So, I mean, in theory, you could either create a new one of these pursuant to this act or, you know, change the Chicago cannabis company. And well, I, if I was you, I'd just probably make a new one and call it Chicago cannabis co-op and then, you know, file it according to this new law so that you can achieve those ends. And that's one of the cool things about the uh, adult use laws. You can, you don't have to be an LLC or a C corp when you file to get your license. You could just be a guy, you know, you can just be yourself. You could be a trust. You could also be this, this type of uh, cooperative, but how would the ownership and control aspects for the social equity work then? Yeah, good question. Um, so we can kind of dive into that a little bit. Uh, just, just backtracking uh, just for a minute. So um, a consumer owned co-op might be like an REI, for example, or like your local food store. Um, that's a co-op like the dill pickle co-op or in, and others like the Chicago market popping up in, I think uptown. Um, so, so those are actually pretty well known. Uh, those are owned by the customers that shop there or members of the co-op. So essentially you get like a dividend for, for, for being a patron uh, of the co-op. Um, a producer co-op might be like Land O'Lakes. Um, so th this might actually have some, um, you know, um, applicability to the hemp industry, maybe even the cannabis industry at, or recreational cannabis industry at some point. Um, but in the past, uh, uh, producer co-ops might be, um, you know, like dairy farmers and things like this, or traditionally. Um, and consumer co-ops might also be owned by like the patients if you're applying that to the cannabis industry. So, you know, patients could buy into a grow-op um, and then that, that grower would um, grow for a select number of members, similar to like what they might have in Michigan. Um, so those are so those are some. When you say similar, what, 
when you say similar to what they might have in Michigan, does that entail its previous medical cannabis laws that they had in the sense that you would have a, uh, a caretaker who could grow for other people? Or what did you mean by Michigan? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And that's been a model for California and Washington. I mean, that's been the whole medical model as far as, uh, you know. It was the earliest medical model was with the caretakers who would grow for patients. But that has been replaced, especially in the Midwest, with the uh, more of the Illinois model where it's, for all intents and purposes, adult use cannabis, except uh, you have a medical card. Yeah. Well, it's nice that you have that infrastructure because it used to be uh, – you know, they would pop up everywhere, which is fine. People survival of fittest, I think, when it comes to capitalism. But, you know, when it evolved from just a small group of people to, hey, I'm going to open a store. And then when you walk into my store, I need you to sign this paper that says you're part of our group. And then when you leave the store, I need you to sign this paper that says that you are not part of our group no more. You know, for 10 minutes, I was there as part of a collective. Yeah, that would make then. So if I was going to try to organize a team that wanted to apply for a cannabis license, craft grower or something, let's say, uh, and they wanted to do it through this particular statute, and it does say articles of organization. So this must be that LLLC thing that I maybe the LLLC thing isn't catching on for branding uh, purposes, but it is um, something that's more akin, it appears to be a uh, a co-op, which wouldn't be necessarily a non-profit because the non-profit act that was from like 86. So it is different, but then how do you uh, structure it in such a way that you can uh, have the 51% ownership and control aspect for the social equity points, if that's the way you're doing it. But then if you have a co-op, of course, then the hard part is like 10 full-time employees and you'd have to have the right mix for the social equity uh, and so you, the employee route might be easier because then it doesn't it avoids the uh, the question about ownership and control. And also, if the profits interest really isn't there um, because it belongs to the workers, uh, you know, that's that's interesting. But then are you going to be able to cash flow from the time that you apply until the time that they announce the licenses and still have sufficient capital allocation to be able to then open your doors? Uh, you know, so that. How would you address the capital raise of the, um, the the stuff that you need? I mean, like, you know, it's expensive. Like, I'm looking at one of these things and I'm like, man, the legal fees on this would be ridiculous because it's new and it's going to take time. And uh, it, it's lawyers don't work for free. That's how they are, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the current... Uh, the way the current application process is structured, I don't think that applying as a co-op uh, would necess necessarily give you an advantage, especially if you are trying to prove social equity ownership. Um, it could be, it could work. For example, you know, if if um, uh, if if the person applying, you know, uh, was a social equity applicant themselves. Um, however, yeah, uh, in a worker owned company, essentially each person has 100% ownership. So it'd be difficult to say one person has majority. Um, it, would it would be practically impossible. Um, so yeah, I'm sure there are ways around it. I'm sure there's some flexibility. Um, yeah. However, yeah, I think if you're applying this year, I, I, I don't think, you know, applying as a co-op is, is, is an advantage. Are there limits to your guys' medical licenses? Because that's what I was trying to get to was 
I think it's great that you, you guys have a recreational and medical infrastructure. Whereas, you know, back in the Wild West, they would just open the door, people sign in and be like, look, I'm legal, technically, I think, but we'll fight that in court later on. Uh, but you as a co-op, being a medical co-op, right? Is that what you're going for? Um, no. So we're, we're currently a hemp business. So we sell CBD products. Um, however, we're structured as a worker-owned company, meaning, um, you know, anyone who works for uh, the company and interest works for the company, or yeah, or um, gets voted in as a member in exchange for sweat equity or some sort of capital contribution, mm-hmm. um, they become a, an owner um, of the company. So nice. Um, it is, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot we can talk about as far as how to run a co-op and how to start one. Um, but we can, we can just go back to like the fundamentals a little bit. So like explaining to folks a little bit more about why you should even maybe consider starting a co-op. What are some of the advantages? Um, you know, what are some of the reasons you might want to look into starting one? Cause it's not the only way to run a company, um, but, but it is one way. All right. Well, let's. Uh, what are some of the reasons that you started this co-op for? Yeah. So I see. You know, I kind of see like where um, uh, U.S. capitalism is kind of leading us in the first place. Uh, we have people um, working from home now due to this coronavirus. Uh, we have everyone has laptops. The forty-hour work week is kind of going out the window in a way. Um, and then you have this also this unproportional um, extrapolation of profit, meaning speculators and people and shareholders of the company or, or CEOs um, and the people at the top are making much more uh, relative to employee wages. Um, so this is this is more like a cultural shift of how to run a company in the first place. So offering more control to people who contribute to the growth of the company over time. Um, it, it applies really well to startups too. So, you know, sharing know. equity. And, uh, yeah, well, how, do you, how do you put up then with the people that want to just, uh, some people are just hardwired for authority. And like, I've, I've done a lot of startups huh. And, and, as, and I've done startups and charities and I've been Steve Jobs from them because I'm trying to start up like something that's got a horizontal structure where everybody can have, you know, interpretations. And then it turns out to like, no, the way I like to run this thing is there's one guy at the top and then everybody else is down. there. And I'm like, that's cool, bro. That's creepy and controlling. And I, I'm really not that thrilled about it. But that's the that's the prevalent method, you know, a, a corporate organization where it is somebody's at the top. And everybody else is, uh, what do they call that in management? Slaves? Delegated. Oh. Delegated. I, I delegate stuff. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, yeah, it's, like, it's, it's a subordinate in a way. Right. Uh, it's very much, you know, chain of command is clear. Um, a lot of companies function like uh, like the military in that way. The, but the beer industry has it under wraps, right? Like Lagunitas is all employee-owned. You know, there's definitely lots of companies out there that are employee-owned. I think that's great that you're creating that sort of uh, business model. But employee owned, I think is kind of like uh, saying all natural and chicken, but not necessarily. There's actually a little bit more to it than that. Uh, I think employee owned, anything can be called employee owned if it's more than 30% owned by the the employees at large. So if you were going to become employee owned and a lot of the ways that these things happen is there is that one guy, uh, Mr. Lagunitas, 
And then he decides to sell out. And so he's going to sell the company back to his employees. And then they enter into what they call an employee stock ownership plan or program, ESOP uh, in the jargon. And so then they enter into an ESOP in which the owner gets cashed out. And then they, again, they've only maybe sold 30% of the company. So maybe me one day, I'm like, you know what? It's time for me to give this cannabis consulting company back to the employees. Go get the audit done so I understand how much my company is worth and then sell 30% to them if they can afford to fund the note. I need a Florida house. <laughs> yeah, an ESOP or an employee-owned company is not necessarily um, the same as a worker cooperative, mainly because um, in an employee-owned company, you don't, you don't always have democratic control. Um, but, but also... Um, yes, you're right. Employee owned companies are popular, especially like for, for some reason in the beer industry, like new Belgium, new Glarus, things like that. Um, how do you get around? It, big has, decisions? it, has, it does have its own benefits to it for sure. How do you get around big decisions? Like say the size of your grow coming up or the, the type of dirt you'll use, you know, the, all the, the grower type stuff. Well, it's not, it's not so much about, um, having control over every decision. Uh, it's more about like empowerment of people. Um, so you can vote to delegate um, tasks or entire uh, departments of the company. That's not an issue. Um, more has to do with bigger picture ideas. So, you know, if, if, if the company's selling, who do we sell to? Where do we locate our facilities? If we're having a tough year, do we fire a bunch of people or do we scale back? Um, and, and, you know, so there's, there's a lot more to it than just, um, decisions on the micro level, like which soil do we use? Um, that probably wouldn't be something that we would vote on. How large do you think a, a co-op can get before it would start really having, uh, management issues because there just might be too many people that get a stay and then nothing gets done. And then for some reason, we're not making any money anymore because, you know, Absolutely. the meeting that we thought was right. going to take two hours took two weeks, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, our, our whole country is democratically controlled and you can say that uh, our, our government uh, is inefficient in some ways. Um, so, yeah, there's 1937, you know, you think yeah. the government doesn't work. Yeah. The government doesn't work. No. Eh. Yeah, so there's some trade-offs. Um, definitely, you know, there is there is um, there is some merit to having decision-making um, power at the top, or you know, control from the top down. Um, a lot of companies operate this way because it's very efficient. Um, it's pretty effective, uh, but at the same time, there's trade-offs. So. Um, how does your employee morale look like? What's your turnover like? Uh, how's your innovation? What's the longevity of your company? Um, so, so perhaps worker ownership um, is a solution to some problems like this. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but you know it could be. Um, I think worker ownership is scalable. Uh, there's a lot of technologies out there that we can use that can help us scale this, but. You're right. I think worker owner companies are not as big or don't get as big, mainly because of that scalability issue. It's like, how do you manage a thousand plus owners having uh, decision making power? Right. It might not be feasible. So then um, 
that's when more traditional hierarchies might come into play. Um, but yeah, the, the size of the company will differ just based on what you're producing, what industry you're actually operating in. Yeah, you could do like email proxies too. So like if you had like 500 people that each had a vote, you could say like, all right, here's the five people that, you know, because let's say that's like a plan for uh, not necessarily culture, but a revenue stream. Be like, all right, do we want to start doing a target market at this particular product for these particular people? And there might be four or five different says of like, you know, uh, maybe we should approach these people. Maybe we should approach the 18 to 21 year olds so we can get brand loyalty you know, just various strategies that might be competing. And then you could send out an email to everybody who's a worker and be like, okay, these are the four options that we're considering for Q2. Uh, go for it. Uh, voting is open and it ends by Friday at 5 p.m. And then you just have the the, the uh, announcement, I guess, after you've tallied all the votes. But yeah, I mean, that's... that's yeah, the yeah. yeah, the benefit is that you can create your own processes and, and, and it's really up to all the members to cooperate and be willing to cooperate together. Right. Um, so, yeah, you can definitely have like one person sour, you know, the, the collaborative nature of a company. That's totally possible. You can have, you know, small factions within the co-op um, trying to control everything. So there's I mean, there's there are issues. It's not like you know, uh, this, this rainbows, unicorns, structure solves all your problems. There's still definitely personality conflicts and, and, uh, differing ideas about how things should be done. So, but I think that's the, you know, that's the beauty of this model is that it allows people to share their ideas openly, um, and critique things in a business and actually come up with solutions to fix things rather than, you know, I mean, there's this always this power dynamic when your wage um, is is and your you know your um, your 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 wage, but also your well being is almost tied to um, your your boss or your employer, right? Like, right. Um, no, if, if you come with and want to solve something, it's not necessarily going to be acknowledged hmm. um, if if your boss just says no. That's not a good idea. All votes are equal in a co-op, right? Like it's not like shareholders. It's just everybody gets equal say. Well, like I'm reading this this new law that we were talking about. It's effective January of this year, and then that does say that you're allowed to have classes of ownership, but it's a single class of ownership. So it's more like an S corp as opposed to a C corp or an LLC in the sense that my LLC is I like to get creative with the classes of ownership. I'm like, no, no, no. We're, you're, you have the grand poobah unit share. It allows you to have a, 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 a dividend. What do they call it? A preferred dividend. If I say that you get it and then also you have no other vote, you know? And so with, with LLCs or with C corps, you can have all different classes of uh, ownership in the uh, membership or in the share of stock. But then in this uh, particular type of collaboration uh, that's that's there for the articles of organization and the other requirements, it said you're only allowed to have a single class. So like everybody would be the same, more along the line of uh, an S corp. Hmm. And Tom G, what kind of do's and don'ts have you learned so far about starting your uh, your co op? Um. Yeah, good question. Um, well, I guess I guess cannabis is kind of like a unique industry in itself, uh, mainly because people who are a little bit like anti, um, 
authority are already participating in this industry. Um, so, so I think I think a lot of these ideas about uh, worker ownership or giving more power to you know those who actually contribute to the growth of a company um, are, are things that people in this industry are already drawn to. Um, not because everyone's like a pot smoking hippie, but just because, you know, maybe maybe a cannabis user is already a little bit more open minded to new things or new ideas, perhaps. Right. Just a, but like if I join, so if someone joins, you don't I'm not necessarily have to be a worker bee, right? I can just am I part of like a club or do I say how do I join and, and what is the process? It's definitely a business. Um, so there's a lot of different. You know, like I said, there's a lot of reasons for co-op. Man down, man down. Oh, no. This is another problem with uh, Comcast Internet in Chicago, which is just terrible sometimes. Uh, we you might know, have to bring them out and then put them back in. But dude, uh, you explain how it works. It's the man stopping him. from the man the has stopped out. a lot. The man has stopped us a lot. And uh, that's one of the things. And while he was talking about it, I was like thinking about creating a new class of shareholders. So let's say somebody comes to me and it's like, hey, Tom, we need to do this particular thing. And it's going to make just a whole bunch of money. I'd be like, tell you what, uh, why don't we create a new class of ownership of my, my LLC? We'll call it the uh, your idea unit. And your idea unit comes with zero voting rights unless it's about your idea. And then also <laughs> all of your all the revenue will track and you have the right to inspect the books for these revenues. And then we'll split the revenues. I'll tell you what, I'll give you I'll give you 25 percent of them. And then that's when they'll say, I don't need you. And they, they leave. And, and I'm like, hey, sit down, sit down. We were negotiating. We were negotiating. Yeah. Well, I think that the co-op. Uh, you know, there was an offer. I mean, like the, the co-op stuff's cool, but then there was a pretty. We can do a, some some legal question that came up while we're trying to get Tom back in here. Um, has anyone ever thought about when alcohol was made illegal? That took an amendment to the United States Constitution. Why wouldn't it require an amendment to make the oldest, safest medicine known to mankind illegal? And that has to do with how it was passed in 1937. It was a tax. They actually used the same methodology that they used to ban Tommy gun machine guns or machine guns in general by taxing them into prohibition. And so that was the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act, which was ruled unconstitutional in 1969 for violating your Fifth Amendment right to uh, uh, not be self-incriminating. And then they, by that time, um, there was an evolution in the uh, Commerce Clause, and which is Congress's power. And then Commerce Clause got really, really big. And in the sense that uh, Wickard v. Filburn, the 1944 case, expanded the ability to be able to regulate agriculture, even agriculture for your own personal use. So that one had a, a case of, let's imagine that you had some, some wheat and you wanted to make your own family crackers. And, and that was your wheat that you were growing to make your own family crackers. No, no, no. They were able to regulate that. And that was uh, reaffirmed in the, the Rach case from 2005 regarding whether or not a seed of medical cannabis grown completely in state directed for that particular patient. Uh, I can't remember Ms. Rach's first name was uh, beyond the power of Congress to control through the um, uh, through their commerce clause powers. And that was no, they can actually control that and they can regulate it. So Rach lost that, which, which really, really stinks. But then uh, in, by 1970, that was the law. So the Congress used its commerce power to regulate commerce in controlled substances. Ba -da -ba -ba. 
cannabis is a controlled substance right next to heroin. And then the regulation again is prohibition. So uh, thank you, Donald, for asking a legal question or kind of, you know, a legal history question. And uh, how's, how's Tom doing? Is he, is he able to come back? Tom, how are you? Oh, that's a good first look. Hey, sorry about that. I got disconnected for a second. <laughs> well, you missed some, you missed some very fascinating uh, constitutional history regarding uh, the marijuana laws. So that's what we use to fill our time. <laughs> there, there yep. um, awesome. So you're you're talking about how uh, if I join and what 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 benefits? Yeah. So. Um, so, so it's not like you have to be part of like a consumer co-op to, to shop at a co-op, for example, um, or you don't have to be like a producer in the co-op to shop from the co-op. Um, but for example, in a workers cooperative, um, you know, let's say, let's say you wanted to join Chicago cannabis company um, and you had some sort of growing experience or you had a fleet of transportation vehicles or you have a kitchen and you produce edibles already or something like that or you have a product idea um you know the way the the industry structure right now it's very difficult for just individuals to start a small business in this in this capacity um so chicago cannabis company offers a platform uh support we already have a website we have a name um we have a platform that allows, you know, open membership, um, democratic control, and also economic participation, meaning the amount of hours I put in to make the um, company profitable, I get paid um, from that profit of the company based on the hours we're inputting. So let's say you had 100 people and no one was doing anything. Uh, the company would not be profitable, so there would be no way to sustain the company. Um, so you have to really enable and promote cooperation and collaboration within the cooperative. Otherwise, there's no business to sustain the members, right? Um, so it's kind of like a cool way of really allowing people to contribute to something and reap the profit uh, in the end rather than just getting a wage, um, you know, and then, and then that's it. <laughs> you don't have any like control or, yeah. Yeah. So joining a co-op is essentially just being an employee, right? But you have a store where other people can come and make purchases pretty much. Yeah. So let's say you have a multi-stakeholder co-op. You can actually have like a worker owned dispensary. Um, uh, and then you have like a producer co-op where the farmer's, are actually um, contributing product to like the uh, cooperatively owned uh, dispensary. Um, so there's really like layers and layers of possibility. It's just people's willingness to share, uh, share power and share profit. Um, people don't. So, people don't. Yeah, it might be. It I've might met be, Chicago. Yeah, it might be counterintuitive. To, yeah. You know, yeah. Awesome. Just saying, but like, what you know, I said, I've met Chicagoans. They like privilege and they like exclusivity. So they like, like, look what I have that you don't. Aren't I special? Uh, and um, so that you got to watch out for that. That could be bad. But then did you say that you have to like keep track of all your time? Yeah. So similar to like how a consultant or a lawyer mm -hmm. might build their time to their client. Um, it's right very down. similar to. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, nice. So that, yeah. It's, it's, it's but business I do like owner guys... 101. You have inputs and then you measure, you know, what your ROI was. Um, this is very similar. Right. So, um, all right. Because uh, I've seen your website and your social media presence, and I really like how it looks. I mean, who does your design and stuff? Awesome. Thanks. Um, yeah, we put a lot of work into really refining um, what we're putting together. So it's still like a very much a learning experience. For example, this is my first business that I've ever started. Mm -hmm. um, but also it's the first co-op I've ever started. So I'm drawing from other people's experience and expertise. So it's, I, I, it's not like I came up with this stuff on myself, by myself. A lot of these principles, cooperative principles even have existed for over 200 years. Um, so... Are there other? Uh, it's, it's just some. It's yeah. I'll just say, are there, are there other co-ops in Indiana, Illinois, Chicago? God damn it! Yeah, Chicago. <laughs> you don't see them. I think there are. Um, there are I mean, like, um, you know, there's a lot of advantages to starting a company as a co-op. Um, so I think a lot more people will be willing to try this new method once it's proven, especially, but. I don't know of many other co-ops in the cannabis industry specifically just yet. No, I, I think the reason for that is because of the high barriers to entry and the large amount of cash flows. Um, because Definitely. when you see something that's passing a hundred thousand dollars in just cheddar a month, um, good vibes ain't just going to divide that up. Somebody's going to come in and be like, "Let's get rid of them." Uh, it, it just, but I, again, I'm kind of very cynical and, and I've seen too many people do too many things for money. Uh, and well, Tom G the industry, cause I mean, he's also a hemp company too, right, Tom? Right. Yeah. So, so hemp, is, hemp is cannabis. So, you know, there's a lot more to the hemp or the cannabis plant than just THC. So really recreational medical cannabis is just the regulation of THC as a compound, it's not really the cannabis industry alone, you know. The hemp that you use, is that grown by you guys then? Um, it's actually grown by an Illinois farm, uh, Illinois farmer, licensed farmer. Uh, his name's Kevin, and he grew with a partner on some um, certified organic land here in Illinois. Um, you can look him up. It's cannabinoids by design. But he's been... You know he's he's uh yeah he's 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 a good friend and 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 partner. So for example, let's say we have a cooperative, and he wanted to contribute his land or his product or his expertise. He can trade that um, in exchange for equity within Chicago Cannabis Company, right which is like any other business. Uh, it's just that we wouldn't like have an acquisition or or create a new LLC, he would just be an individual uh, within the co-op. Well, I think lawyer Tom is just too cynical about the structure of the co-op being, you know, one big happy family. Cause I mean, there's, there is always issues about one big happy family, but I really hope you guys do well because it would be a great precedent for other companies to, you know, stay self-contained. You know, we see all these big med men's coming through uh, only four places in, uh, uh, Florida, you know, not yeah. many options. So if, if we can do more of that, I think it'd be great. Yeah. 
Tom, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Chicago Cannabis Company. You, Where can that. we go and uh, find and follow or join? Yeah, I think I think you have a right to be skeptical. Uh... Yep. Totally, oh. totally like the skepticism for like the man is watching you. Like, you know, what do you do? I, uh, I'm a cannabis lawyer and I have a cannabis YouTube channel where we talk about how we're going to usurp the current cannabis laws. You know, uh, but you're interrupted it's a lot. Still, it's still a new... Yeah. Oh, right. okay. Well, we'll make sure to throw uh, his Absolutely. social media links and their webpage in the description. And as always, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Canvas Legalization News. We'll see you on Sunday. See you Sunday.